1996, author David Foster Wallace released his magnum opus, Infinite Jest, an 1,100-page post-postmodern takedown of the great American novel. It was a smash success all throughout the world. Unfortunately, it just wasn't very good. Famously dense and nigh unfinishable, the book earned a backlash as great as its praise. Join me, Jesse Graham, as we untangle this tale of boredom, addiction, and French-Canadian separatists in our quest of understanding on the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Hello out there in podcast radio land. This is Jesse Dram, and I am here returning with the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast number five. We're getting up there. We're a sixth of the way through, maybe? I don't know. This, this is right around the time a lot of people give up on this book. Today's episode, pages 121 to 150. Okay, that was really weird. My audacity was looking like shit. Uh, pages 121 to 151. Very ashamed to say, I really like this particular section we're working with. We uh, start with the only remotely romantic experience that Mario Incandenza has ever had, where he comes up against the mighty, brazen uh, USS Millicent Kent. For an interesting little story there, we get a fun little sketch involving an artificial heart, a man's trouble with barrels, the, the most trouble we've had with barrels since Donkey Kong, and our guest this week is comedian Ben Pernick. That is P-E-R-N-I-C-K. As in, hmm, how do I pay for those nicks? Per Nick. Ben Pernick. Ben is a very funny comic out of New York. He finished reading Infinite Jest recently, but in an interesting way. We keep hitting on new things here. He listened to it via audiobook. Which is very interesting because we meet uh, a character in here named Yours Truly and his friends Poor Tony and C. And that entire goddamn chapter is basically four paragraphs stretched across eight pages in a Boston fucking accent. And I make a very good argument, I believe, where, listen, even if you love this book, the sheer fact that it has so many horrible sections discounts it from being a good book. No matter what you say. I, l- let me think of what's a terror. I love the movie Blast from the Past. I love the, uh, first off, Brendan Fraser. That's three stars instantly. I don't care if it's him looking at his fucking alimony check. Brendan Fraser gets three stars from me. Then you have Christopher Walken as his dad and Sissy Spacek. He's lived underground in a bomb shelter for 35 years, and he comes out. And what does he find? It's 1998. And who's there dangling at the edge of relevancy in 1998? Alicia Silverstone. Also, this just happens to be made during the six months that swing music is making a comeback. So many things had to happen to make this movie work. I love it. It's one of my favorites of the 90s. It is an objectively stupid stupid movie and if i annoyed every woman i met with what do you mean you haven't seen blast from the past blast from the past is the commentary on postmodernism and frankly i'm smarter than you fuck you i kind of lost where i was going there 
Ben Pernick is a musical comedian, and he has an album out there, Bad Juju, as in J-E-W-J-E-W. He's going to be our lead-in on this, a little clip of Bad Juju. You can find him on all the things at Ben Pernick, again, P-E-R-N-I-C-K, B-E-N, one N, B-E-N, P-E-R, N-I-C-K. You can find me at Jesse Dram on all the things, J-E-S-S-E-D-R-A-H-A-M. Don't look into it too hard because I may have been in a screaming argument for a lot of this weekend with a very dumb, unfunny person who does not deserve the time of day. How you doing? Yeah. I shouldn't even mention that. Um, in my personal life, I got a new bunny. That's right. Did you know I had bunnies? Now you got them. Don't worry. I'm not going to spend very long on this. I inherited a bunny rabbit named Iggy from my ex-girlfriend, Anami, because she and I moved in together, and she had this cute little bunny rabbit that she did not take care of very well, but I took care of instead. And then as our relationship fell apart and I was letting this guy out of his cage every day, I'd lay on the floor with him while he ate his kale and say, you know, buddy, I feel like I'm trapped in a cage sometime soon, too. So when me and Anami broke up, I said, hey, uh, you're going to kill this thing. Can I please have him? So I took him and we were best buds. Eventually, I got him a little lady bun named Abby. I love Abby dearly. Unfortunately, she died. And once you die, your love doesn't count anymore. So we buried her behind my mom's pool in Belmar, New Jersey. Shallow grave because my mother lied to us and said she had a shovel. And what she had was a hand trowel for gardening. So, yeah, fun digging that up. Trying to dig an animal grave with a hand trowel, not to mention I'm pretty sure I hit my childhood dog's skull on the way down. Rest in peace, Lucy. Where the fuck am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is Iggy the rabbit has found love again. We found him a nice black and white moo cow spotted mini Rex girl. Her name was originally Lola, but I mean, I have... I have a podcast dedicated to the book Infinite Jest, which I don't like. I hope you believe I am not so basic that I would actually have a rabbit named Lola Bunny. It's like having a dog named Fido or Spot. It's just like you don't – they need to ask you when you adopt the animal. Like, oh, okay, here's your new dog. What are you going to name him? Fido. I'm sorry, offer rescinded. You're going to tie this up under the basement probably in a chain and never feed it. Okay, bye. That's vocal fry. I'm trying not to do – trying not to do the vocal fry anymore. I'm working on it. So Iggy the bunny has a new girlfriend. We named her Rorschach, Rorschach after her spots, which were going by Rory because my girlfriend loves Gilmore Girls and we're watching it right now. So it's Iggy and Rory. That is the background in which I recorded this episode. Two loving bunnies meeting each other, fighting online with an unfunny hack comic, as you do. Uh, not Ben, just, just some nobody. You don't need to know her name. And also, I'm probably being fired from my job this week. Episode 5 of the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Pages 121 to 151 with Ben 
Pernick. And here's some of Ben's song, Bad Juju. We'll turn all your toys to dreidels. We'll turn all your fish to gefilte. Our overlord is a Jewish mothership. She controls us using guilt. We'll go Jurassic and resurrect a carnivorous dinosaur. When we take over the world, we won't impress them. Okay, we are recording episode five. Welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jazz podcast, Mr. Ben Pernick. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm still alive, so I guess I'm pretty good. That's the bare minimum we can be happy about, and it's a lot to be happy about. These It's a little <laughs> harder than usual to still be alive these days. Yeah, okay, so... Ben is a comic uh, out of New York City. He's actually one of the people that I uh, got in contact with via the Katu King Infinite Jest Facebook threads, where we've had several now. And uh, yeah, tell us th- tell us about your, well, first off, if you have anything to plug or anything going on, uh, any websites or skits we should look up, please let us know. And uh, yeah, just tell us what... You know, your reading background, what you heard about the book, what made you want to read it, and what do you think? All right, sure. Well, uh, I tend to uh, have a little ADD, so I'll do the plug right away so I don't forget it later. I appreciate you putting it at the front just to get that over with. So, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, so uh, I came out with an album this past year called Bad Juju, J E W J E W. Okay. It's, it's, Trust me, it's the whole album isn't Jewish, but the the one that I made the music video for is a very uh, irreverent Jewish Jewish song. So uh, okay, yeah. Um, but as far as books go, um, actually, a few people I'm in in a book. I recently joined a book club, and a few people that I was in that with were in the music video. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I don't even think the book club is necessarily like what got me into it, but I. It, did sort of help me realize like oh wow like a lot of these people are a lot more well-read than me uh in the city like especially in Brooklyn like that's just really common that people you know like I'm dating you know I'm single and dating dating profiles and everything you suddenly start to feel really mm. intellectually inferior to these people who just have so many different books but with me I, I just don't have the attention span to really like sit down and read mm. I'm more so I discovered audiobooks um which is like how I've uh really kind of kept up with things. And even in the book club, I usually, I don't consider it cheating to do an audio book, but it, it is different. Um, That's and, right. I, I forgot going into this, that you actually had a very novel way of reading this novel. You listen to it all via audio book. Yeah. Which some people would consider a uh, rare form of torture. Um, <laughs> I mean, the toughest thing is that, you have to keep switching back and forth from like a PDF that has all the footnotes. Oh God. Okay. If you decide that you want to do the footnotes, you have to, you know, be yes. listening and then, you know, you catch up on all these footnotes. And by the time you read the footnotes, you don't even remember what it was like. So while they're reading the audiobook, like you'll just suddenly hear a different voice, like a woman's voice where it's like a guy reading most of the parts and like the woman's voice will just say 227. And then it'll keep going. And then you have to be like 227. Oh, okay. Let me find the PDF. Okay, here it is. Goddamn David Foster Wallace. Those those footnotes are chasing you like Freddy Krueger, no matter how much. You went to a different medium to escape, the, escape them, and they're still chasing you down, demanding to be read. 
And that is, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'll admit going into this, I knew nothing really about Infinite Chest. I mean, I, I hoped that it was it would sort of be uh, kind of like um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-esque kind of like comedy. And, um, you know, I like humorists like David Sedaris. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give this a try. And at least at the beginning, I'm like, okay, this is not that. Definitely not that. But no. my number one reason for getting it was because I had an Audible. Like I had one credit left on Audible because it's like you have the monthly subscription. I'm mm. like, okay, what's a, like the longest book that I actually might want to get through? And I was like, oh, I can still use one credit for an uh, like 1,100 page book. Okay, I'll do that. That is a steal, my friend. That is a bargain if there ever was one. I thought so too. So how how long did it take you to listen to an 1100 page book? You know, I think I downloaded it sometime. It actually didn't take that long. I think I downloaded it in sometime in February. Okay. okay. And I finished it a few weeks ago. So So well uh, all right, another thing like of interest. This is the first time you've ever attempted anything with the book. Because it's very rare that people get it. Every Even people who love the book, I hear have said, like, oh, yeah, it's the greatest book ever. I mean, I tried and failed to read it, like, 18 times. Like, you would be the first person I know who went, like, I'm starting and I finished. Yeah, I, I guess I'm sort of a bit of a completionist. Like, when I listen to podcasts, I tend to listen to the entire catalog going, like, all the way back. And I'm not, even if it's, like, dredging through, I still am like, I must finish. So... There were definitely parts of this where I kind of took a pause and did other things. And then at some point I was like, okay, I'm doing some really tedious task and I just, I may as well listen to something. Maybe I can break through this really frustrating part to where, and it starts to get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is my, I've, I've said this in earlier episodes, but I guess I'll remind people every few. This is my second time going to the book. The first time I got it in my early 20s and I fought against it. I didn't read it. I fought against it for 400 pages, hoping there was going to be something great on the other side of it. And I was just so annoyed with it that eventually it was a point. It's like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, what could possibly be on the other side of this? People tell me there's still a great story over there. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm the rube on the boardwalk being taken right back into the hall of mirrors with promises of excitement and wonder and I'm just being a dummy with my cotton candy going in again. So let's hope this time it works out. Um, so what do you think of it overall, having completed it? I mean, does this mean that I'm allowed to sort of give spoilers? Give or any spoiler. I do not. I, I assume anybody listening to this podcast is e either they already know it inside and out or they need these little morsels to keep them going. Okay. Well, I mean, my opinion, like, at different points in the book, I would say very different things of my opinion in it, um, of it. I, I definitely felt somewhat captivated by the different storylines, and I, I hate to say, but, like, it was pa just around past that, like, maybe about around the 500, 600 page mark, maybe even 700, or, like, then it starts to get really good, and the stories start intertwining more, sort of like the end of, like, a BoJack Horseman season. It's, like, mm. all these different storylines that seem completely disparate in, in different ways 
just like start combining and like you think it's impossible but um but then at the end like and i i mean i even made a status about this like just uh you know it wasn't uh i can't even remember it now but oh maybe the real infinite jest is all the like intricate storylines that never get fucking resolved along the way um, I'm, I'm looking forward to some of them tying together. We actually get a little tiny hint that I don't mind telling out of order because it's barely mentioned, but we've met uh, Marath and Steeply, the two spies in Tucson, and we see in one of the, uh, we, we see a brief article written by Steeply, but it's mentioned beforehand that his actual, like, charge right now is has something to do with Orin. So as a up until this, we had no idea there was any relation whatsoever. And then he just drops in there like, oh, by the way, he's keeping an eye on Orin. That's what he's doing in Tucson. Which, I mean, I guess I could have put together because that's the only character in Tucson. Maybe I'm bad at reading. It's certainly very possible. So, Yeah, well, I think it's also fun. I mean, a lot of things, because, you know, like to get ready for, for this podcast, I, I listened to everything again. And there were so many things on this second listen through that I really, during the times when I was just trying to plow through, I mean, honestly, I, like they kept talking about, again, this is not about the steeply, but about the, you know, the different uh, like druggies and stuff and uh, the guy C. And I was, I never paid attention to this character C that they were talking about. And then like at the end of the book, like he's there, but at the end of the book, it's earlier, like, than where he is now, where before he is like, uh, you know, an official person with this gang. And then like here he makes a quick, quick uh, quip about, oh, in his earlier days, he was, you know, with this essentially like mob boss. But now he's like, you know, on the streets just trying to, you know, score, score some heroin. Okay. See, that's interesting because, all right, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to do an infinite jest here and I'm going to go out of my own order chronologically because you mentioned C, and C and the other character, yours truly, are mentioned in a chapter here. By the way, because I, I in case I didn't say it in the intro, we're doing pages uh, 121 to 151. Right. I so, I take particular issue with this chapter because it is another one of... Uh, so, we meet a character named yours truly, and the entire chapter is going to be from his point of view... It is another one of those, a paragraph that stretches for five pages, run-on sentence, in a Boston accent, no less. Uh, just to make my argument, this is what I have written in my notes. Shit like this is why I submit this simply cannot be a good book. It can be your favorite book. It cannot be a good book. And my argument to that, I go to film. Uh, there's a director famously said, a good movie is three good scenes with no bad scenes. We are not even a quarter of the way through this book, and there are so many bad scenes that I mean, like, a big thing, think of, like, the White Album with the Beatles, where people mm. very often say, like, oh, that would be the Beatles' greatest album if not for three terrible songs which drag it down. That would be Wild Honey Pie, Revolution 9, and Bungalow Bill. So I'm just, again, I'm hoping there is just a pot of gold on the other side of this mountain, but I can't understand... Ugh. What did you think of the chapter? Before I go, I mean, Spider-Man 3 is ruined by one dance scene. I've seen, it's funny because Spider-Man 3 was like for a long time the only Spider-Man movie I saw. So 
what, what poor unfortunate circumstance led to that happening? Oh, I don't even know. It was just happened to be. I was went to a theater at that time, and the the first two, I was like, oh, I'm sure they're good, but that was just the way. And then I'm like, oh, I guess I haven't missed out on anything. That's like then, only having seen The Phantom Menace. It's it, it's yeah. confusing. <laughs> well, now I want to go back because I saw Into the Spider Verse after taking an edible, and that blew my mind. Probably my most enjoyable movie watching experience of all time. So. Okay. See, I haven't, I haven't seen that one yet, but see, I do, see it. I mean, I, it's like PG, but it's, it's worth it. I very much believe in intoxicants with art. I remember uh, when Inglorious Bastards came out, I saw it twice in the theaters. One time I went to see it, I was drunk when I got there and sobered up as the movie went on. And the other time I went to see it in the theater, we had snuck in a flask because we were 22 and that's badass. <laughs> So I came in sober and got drunk as it went along. And it's two entirely different movies. I can't recommend it enough. (laughs) I haven't mixed drinking with movies that much. I think probably because the first time I tried was during Goodwill Hunting. That is not the right movie to watch while I'm drunk. That is not a good one to watch while drunk, particularly if you have any kind of past, a negative past. You don't need to be sitting there drunk empathizing while Robin Williams says it's not your fault because... No matter what happened to you in your life, that will hit you in like the core of your soul, and you mm-hmm. might then. <laughs> good. So, all right. This is interesting. I, no. Oh, sorry. Good. Oh, uh, I was I was gonna say that it's. I feel like it's less like a Beatles because he's not trying to be a Beatles. He's like trying to be like a John Cage. Like he he wants you to get frustrated. Like mm. I think that's he he's trying to like break the <clears throat> the entire like expectations of like what entertainment is Mm -hmm. so i think that it's like a more it's actually sort of like the um the james in candenza like Mm -hmm. i feel like it's semi-autobiographical and that he is trying he's focusing less on the storyline you know and more on just like this tapestry of different characters but you know the thing is i do think he makes these characters just seem as even the ones who are incredibly irritating like, I feel like he makes them seem believable. Like, that guy who's yours truly is mm-hmm. just like some Bostonian guy who just, like, won't shut the hell up and you can't get away from him. And he's just, like, going on and on. Oh, well, okay. If I can read a passage, and by the way, while I'm finding this, uh, if you're somehow listening to this and don't know who John Cage is, please go look up The Greatest Song Ever Written 433. Puts Stairway to Heaven to shame. Go look at it right now. Make sure your headphones are working. Headphones don't work sometimes with that song. (laughs) Anyway, so this is just an ex... I'm going to pick from any old random place. If any horrible words pop up, I'm sorry to the listener. Xmas is non-celebrated in Chinatown. Dr. Wo, a good thing about Wo is he's always there in hung toys at known times. Here there's all old slope racial type ladies sitting in booths eating noodles and drinking quote hot tea out of a cup the size of a shot glass and everything like that. With small slope kids tear-assing it all over and old men and like Jew caps and skinny beards out of just the middle out of the chin there. But Dr. Woe is only middle-aged and wears iron glasses and a tie and looks more like a banker for a slope. But he is 100% business and ice cold and not to be fucked with. Yeah, that was hard enough. I'm glad I didn't try to do it with a Boston accent. <laughs> well, I will say that that is actually one thing that the audiobook 
this guy Sean Pratt who does the how narration. Did part, how did that part play over the audiobook? Because it's like long run on. Oh, you heard me. I ran out of breath there. Yeah, but like, I feel like he did a really good job making each of these characters sound distinct and uh, very, like, it still was very much a run on. And those passages in particular, like, were the ones that I found the hardest to get through. Uh-huh. You know, with all like the racial and just like half the time not even knowing what they're talking about, like is the hardest to follow because of all the all the slang and just this person and that person. And um, and at first I was like, why why do I care about this? What does this have to do with the story? But mm. but I will say that like listening to it, this was one of the times where I a lot of times I think they say reading a book you get a lot more than the audiobook because of like how it reads in your head. But here it's like, it does sort of guide you to what these characters are supposed to sound like. And I, I think that does make like a big difference in kind of like your perception of them and like how, how easily some of the things can be like gotten through. Right. Um, I would definitely be curious how, what the benefit, uh, how that, ben- how much that would benefit listening to this in audio form. Cause I remember reading something once just about like the the psychology of reading and one of the things in there where they i remember they used a long run-on sentence as an example there but just how we don't realize that the brain actually uses punctuation like we don't fully absorb things until we actually see the period that says oh you can you know you don't need to add any more to this thought right now and how those things even though it is just you know a tiny little piece of ink on a piece of paper it really does like disrupt the way our brain just absorbs these things overall and learns and holds on to stuff. So, yeah. But anyway, so what I have here for what happens, this is in the middle of our section here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yours truly talking about getting drugs and beating people up and breaking jaws and cutting off ears. Uh, there's a woman named Susan Cheese who buys beers. I did not mean to make this rhyme. It just kind of... <laughs> They talk about almost raping an older nurse. They talk about Dr. Woe, who is a drug dealer. Um, they're both heroin addicts, I believe. They're very much fiending. Dr. Woe is hooking them up with some drugs, even though it's mentioned in there that they've ripped him off very recently. Or one, one of the guys. Yeah, somebody yeah. in there. Um, after they get the drugs and go off to use them, it's revealed that Dr. Woe sold them a hot shot, sent them some laced stuff. And I believe C is the one who is, uh, unfortunately, the only one who injected and starts freaking out. Said that he's freaking right. out, clawing at himself, leaking blood from every orifice. His eyeballs burst out. And his friends, yours truly, and uh, I don't think... Poor Tony. Guys, poor Tony, yeah. They he leave. was the one who, yeah, yeah, who was they, responsible for that. Oh, he was the one that fucked over Dr. Woe. I think it was, yeah. It might have been him and Susan, but I know, like, and he was going on a whole thing of, like, poor Tony was acting weird, like he wasn't looking. Mm-hmm. And he even kind of mentions he may have got gotten over on, on Dr. Woe. But, mm-hmm. like, they, they basically, you know, they were fiending. So they're like, we're going to do this anyway. You can hide. So poor Tony was, like, out away. But then Dr. Woe does ask, hey, so about poor Tony, like, have you seen him recently? I know you two used to, like, hang out together. And he's trying to be like, oh, no, I... Like, you know, I beat him up or something and, like, cut ties with him after something. So yours truly and C are going into Dr. Well alone, and they're meeting up with poor Tony after. Poor Tony's not in there. Right, right. He basically says, get one for me. 
but I don't want to be there. All right. So Woe Woe has an idea that yours truly and C are coming in and they're going to be splitting with him. So that's what. Okay. Okay. But then, but then, and this is all, I will say that listening to this, the first time I didn't pick up on a lot of this. And the second time I was like, oh, okay. It makes more sense now. Cause they're like, oh, it's Dr. Woe's taking a long time in the back. And like, he's, you know, he's noticing these like strange, you know, the way he's holding the bags is almost like he's covering them, mm. you know? So he, he knows that poor Tony, you know, he has people on his side, like who are all over. So he probably like asked someone to go check and see if poor Tony like was seen hiding out somewhere around the building mm. and probably came back to say oh. like, we found him like they're still yeah. together. So. Yeah. So, uh, but at all that poor Tony survives, yours truly survives. It's C who gets Drano up his veins. They leave his mm-hmm. body in a dumpster knowing it can't be tied back to them without giving away too much information. Yours truly uh, goes, tries to go back to his mom's house, which she's been locked out of. So he decides that he is going to try to kick out his fiends here in a dumpster outside of his mom's apartment. A lot of, honestly, as much as I, I fucking hate the writing style, like there's a lot of really gritty, true to life shit in there. And uh, like one thing that one thing I've known that heroin addicts have told me before, because I have them in my friends and in my family is that this is different because this is very specifically like a poison hot shot but it's known in the drug community that if somebody overdoses if there's like a particularly like harsh batch that is out there and somebody overdoses when other addicts hear about it they will rush to get that same stuff knowing that like oh well i've cut it so i can be okay but hearing that there's something so strong out there they immediately like flock to it just yeah it's, I, I think uh, David Foster Wallace also like, and I didn't know this, you know, after I read the book, I kind of tried to read some things to help make sense of it because with the end, you know, I'll say the ending was very frustrating because none of the storylines get, get tied off in the way that you, you like in a typical entertainment piece. So like you're trying to make, make ends of it. But I think some of the most at what I found compelling passages were the ones about addiction maybe because I haven't really heard about it. And I even recently in the book club, we did a memoir about someone who was like, you know, it was a white guy who like successful white guy who had a, you know, addiction to painkillers that got really out of hand. But even like, I I never felt I could like relate with that character, but some of the ones like the, uh, the earlier in the book, like the woman or the woman who said she'd come Mm -hmm. with like Ken or like, I don't know some, like, I feel like you almost like you have to be an addict to understand this like addict mind. And sure enough, I, I didn't know this before I read the book um, um, not until I was finished, but that David Foster Wallace had a lot of his own issues with addiction. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, later it might've played a role in like why he demapped himself. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely some stuff in there. It's uh, I, I have so many people in my family that are in recovery that I really want them to make them, I want to make them read like a little bit of this book, even though they're like very working class South Jersey people. So like not anything like David Foster Wallace, but I'm, I'm curious what they would get out of it. I know uh, when they talk about the Ennett recovery house in here, there's some stuff that I know just from family and AA. It's like, okay, that's pretty damn funny. This guy clearly knows some of the ins and outs of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
But uh, we can get that in a little bit. So to pull a DFW here, we'll jump back to the beginning of our section. I like that we actually get some good chapter titles in this. Because most of them are yeah. just Year of the Adult Depend Undergarment. This first one is Mario Incandenza's first and only even remotely romantic experience thus far. Yeah. Mario being the deformed middle child of the Incandenza family. He is being led into a bunch of thickets on the Enfield Academy campus by a burly young lass named uh, USS Millicent Kent. Presumably USS is because she's a rather large girl. 200 yes. kilos. Left-handed, they said that she challenged several boys to a bench press challenge, resulting in one victory, one forfeit when the opponent didn't show, and a bare loss that the opponent had to dearly struggle to win. They're looking, she said, tells Mario, who's kind of a special boy in some way, that she saw a husky VI telescoping tripod back in the thicket. She leads him back there, clearly for some romance, but Mario is only curious about the tripod. I think... We all knew kids about that, uh, kids like that growing up. I was very jealous that they could be detached enough from that. <laughs> starts flirting, saying Mario has, quote, the longest, luscious, prettiest eyelashes of any boy on two continents, three if you count Australia. I think, like, that in itself is just, like, hilarious. Like, it's just, like, such a, a weird compliment in, like, three different ways. Like, complimenting the eyelashes, like, the... the continents part like i'm just like compliment eyelashes all you want you don't have to put down australia australia counts Come on. <laughs> uh despite her natural affinity for tennis millicent kent's true love is interpretive dance though she admits she has nowhere near the talent for it he mentions mainly coming to enfield to escape her widower father and that at one day when she was eight years old she came home early to find her giant morbidly obese father wearing her mother's shoes and stuffed grotesquely into his eight-year-old daughter's leotard with his gut hanging out at every angle, dancing. That's a fun image there. There's a, Somebody contacted me online that they had made a bunch of sketches from Infinite Jest, and I haven't looked at it yet. I, desperate, I don't know how you can have that described to you and not illustrate it in some way if you have that talent. Uh, apparently it's discovered between her and her sister that this isn't simply transvestism, but a deep urge to specifically wear the female clothing of, uh, female relatives. And this answers some hanging questions about why her sister's clothes were strangely stretched and baggy. Mario barely pays attention to this, instead telling a joke he heard from Pemulus about West Virginians marrying their sisters. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to get in a weird thing here. Millicent asks Mario if he has ever seen a girl's yin-yang before, which got me thinking, like, there is a weird thing with children where we have, uh, we're told very strange names for our genitals at a young age. Do you have any, uh, do you have any weird memories of that? Feel free to not engage. This just brought up a lot of weird shit for me. I, I mean, I think a lot of people do, and I, I kind of almost feel like I missed out in that. For me, it was like, like you know, a penis was a pee pee, and the other thing we never even heard about. My mom was one of those like, I don't even want to hear the like anything, hear the word sex or anything about it till you're 18. Right. Don't talk about vaginas; they'll hear you. They'll come <laughs> late at night. It's like I remember as as a boy, we called again. This might be a South Jersey thing because I've only heard it around here. Uh, your bird. <laughs> you never heard that. that is... 
Why a bird? I don't know. I, it's just it just kind of hangs there like birds do. Maybe somebody confused a bird with a bat hanging upside down. Uh, I remember disturbingly in high school, a girl I was dating was uh, trying to be sexy, and she told me like I just shaved my bun bun. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. This might explain why I, as an adult man, have bunnies for pets. But still, that's weird. Weird. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were thinking of growing a man bun. Oh God, it's. I mean, if it's on the top of my head, I'd really need to do some kind of. I need to do a special <laughs> kind of yoga if I'm ever going to make that happen. Um, <laughs> and that gives a whole new meaning to flipping the bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. There will be plenty. I'll be somersaulting down the steps trying to make that shit happen. You know, it's funny. I had long hair up until very recently. I never thought of doing the man bun. I don't know why. I, I, I think I'm very lucky that I'm still very well covered up there. So, uh, I don't know. Um, Millicent reveals that Mario's eyelashes and vest turn her on, and she smushes his face against her breast. She goes to grab for his penis, or his bird, but brushes his insanely ticklish stomach, which leads to a laugh high-pitched enough that Hal, who has been calling for him, finds them immediately in the thicket. They stop and all three awkwardly walk along together when they randomly find the husky tripod nowhere near the thickets where uh, Millicent seemed to think they were. Okay. That's actually a nice little, like, young love type thing. I don't know. What, what did you think of that, John? I mean, on the one hand, I found most of this to be, like, pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it is sort of just the fact that, like, this, uh, like, just little, like, the a lot of contrast, like just humorous contrasts. I mean, one, this giant woman being attracted to this, you know, who is very competent in tennis and other physical things, being attracted to someone who is like more physically like deformed than probably any other character in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it's, you know, also that her love of interpretive dance. Yes. (laughs) But uh, on the other hand, like, if you flipped like the genders and everything, this could be a story of someone with a, like basically with a van saying they have candy and luring a kid with like disabilities to like to go inside the van. I mean, in a sense, this you could argue, oh my god, this is horrible, but it doesn't feel horrible because of all these extenuating circumstances that Mario's just so innocent that he seems to not really like care, even though he doesn't sexually seem to, you know be responsive the fact that it's like when she goes in for the for the bird that he lets out a high-pitched giggle <laughs> like it's which hey we've, we've all been there sometimes it just catches you on a weird graze and you know you get a little 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 doughboy i remember my first time getting a back massage i could i like my back was really sensitive and i could not stop la- like <laughs> laughing and making involuntary sounds and it was really starting to annoy <laughs> the masseuse <laughs> God, I remember being 15 and there was some girl, I got set up with some girl and I was not into it, but she was like kissing my lower belly and it was like erotic, but it was like, this is more ticklish than anything. I would, I would prefer you stop than continue. <laughs> I found out I caught ringworm from that girl. So my, my first STD long before I ever had sex. Good. <laughs> that's, that's like a... Achievement, a rare achievement. Oh, yeah. I, I put it on my resume. It's gotten me many a gigs, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Yeah, so I, I do also think just like the fact it sort of says something about all the characters. I mean, and that like they don't talk after all this happens. And like, presumably there's got to be Hal comes upon Maria like in the middle of the woods with this girl. And like, they don't talk about it. Like they just all walk together. And then it's like, oh, haha, there's the tripod. Mm-hmm. Like, there's got to be something interesting there because I mean, it's for one thing if you're looking for your little brother and you find him in a bush with a young gigantic woman, like you kind of, you know, there, there's no good answer there. Do you back away and be like, oh, it's as you were? Or and I think one of the things that makes it okay is it is clear that they're roughly the same age, and uh, as far as Mario's deformity, which hasn't entirely been elaborated on. But he does seem to be, while uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't go as far as simple. I, I would say he seems uncomplicated. He doesn't seem like deficient mentally, so it doesn't ring that bad. I I was cheering for him there. Oh, oh yeah, I mean everyone kind of is. So it's I mean it's sort of funny in the way that like in a sense he kind of blows it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, you you don't even know what he wants. But I mean. What, what I had read, it basically, and it, it becomes more clear as the book goes on that he is, like, very, you know, mentally, he, like, his cognitive capacity definitely is inconsistent throughout the book. Because there's, like, one point where he writes this extreme, like, political commentary puppet show that's, like, extremely intricate. But then it, a lot of times he's just, like, a child. But he's he's definitely, I think, like, the only clearly moral character in the book but like in the way that a child has morality right they have they have morality because they do not even have the negative impulses yet it almost seems like like they don't they don't have the temptation i guess yeah Hmm. and they don't like judge people so they're willing like that's nobody particularly likes mario like loves mario other Mm -hmm. than the the moms maybe and but how Mm -hmm. but like nobody everybody allows him to, to be around and because he, he never and he'll accept anybody oh yeah it, you know it's funny i actually just watched for the first time uh last picture show have you ever seen that no i haven't seen that no it's it's about a small town in texas and just regular small town shit but there's like uh a simple boy that like the main characters still like they bring along with him and you know they just yeah, he's not always going to, he's not really chiming in on the conversation, but like they want him there. It's like, that's, that's Andy. We want Andy around. And I mean, they end up getting him a hooker. So it goes a little far, but it's not because they wanted to humiliate him. It's because we don't want to leave Andy out, throw him in with the hooker. (laughs) And I I do love, I mean, when she's describing her obese father, like as terrible as that whole thing is just like the, the specific words he chooses, I think just like paint, paint such a clear picture like yeah. you know capering and she like i think that was the word capering and elastic shot and like all these things that very like give just like a gr- such a grotesque picture of it all that it's like it's funny and, and simpering but it's, it's like funny but at the same time you like you can understand how awkward and terrible it must have been for her which makes you th- sympathize. Were you to think that she is like a terrible person for doing this tomorrow, you can totally sympathize with why she might be a little messed up. Yeah. Like the, the weirdest moment I had with my dad was like the only time I saw him clean shaven. And I cannot imagine if I saw him like, you know, wearing my underpants on his head. That wouldn't, <laughs> that, 
That's one good thing about a dead father is the worst is done. Nothing's going to surprise you from here on out. So, <laughs> okay. Um, let's jump ahead. We got Marath and Steepley. This is a tiny little thing here. They discuss the entertainment and a supposed anti-entertainment antidote. Uh, the wheelchair assassin's base is in Boston, which in the new country alignment is the closest U.S. city to Quebec, as all the more northern cities have been absorbed into Canada. Marath thinks of his wife, who is slowly dying of ventricular restenosis, a narrowing of the cardiac sinuses, sinuses, once incredibly rare, now insanely common cause of death in the close-knit lands of Quebec, New Brunswick, and the high northeast U.S. Associated with exposure to trioxins, they discuss how steeply at one point was undercover as a Haitian. Would have been interesting. And they discuss the differences in how men and women examine their fingernails. I mentioned that on another episode, how I found that I went through a goth phase in high school and uh, my stepdad was not cool with it at all because I was like dying my nails black. Dying. I feel like the parents never are. No. <laughs> my mom was mostly okay with it, but his whole thing was like, he knew I was an artsy one and unfortunately, I know part of it was he, he didn't have, like, oh, is he gay worries? Because he knew, like, oh, you started doing that when the really cute goth girls started coming around. But he had to draw the line, like, could you just stop looking at your nails out like that? Like, a man looks at his nails. <laughs> like, fuck. What, all right, whatever, whatever you need, Ken. Whatever you need from me. Um, yeah, any thoughts on that little section? It's a little blip. It's like a page or two. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it does kind of actually come into the book like later on where like, I mean, I guess part of the humor is like, so, and I might say the pronunciations differently because like in the book it was woo instead of woe and uh, Marat was like the uh, the French guy. But, mm. um, you know, Marat clearly knows steeply is is steeply. But uh, later well, in the book... So, so this is another fun fact. Because you've been listening to the audiobook, you know the proper pronunciations for all this shit. I've just been calling him Marath and didn't care to look it up because <laughs> I'm not competent. But Marat, I know that from now on. Okay, yeah. sorry, continue. Yeah, so um, it was... Uh, I, I found it pretty interesting that uh, it, later in the book, when Steeply is, you know, interviewing with people, like, most of them think he's a woman. Orin like falls in love with with Steeply, hmm. so it's sort of just like an absurdist kind of thing, like this giant monstrosity, and that like you know, and the descriptions of how it, how clearly poorly this is done. Yeah, right. it, it's sort of like the a comedy gag where like someone puts on the glasses, and then everyone's like, oh, it's you know, it's Clark Kent, it's not super <laughs> Superman. Okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that. Um, we have a little bit here about how there is an oiled-up guru at Enfield. Nobody has mentioned this yet. Uh, he's been there since James and Candenza founded the place. He is known to lick the sweat off of the students and then give them wisdom. Um, one bit of wisdom, which is going to play off later in this, is let not the weight thou wouldst pull to thyself exceed thine own weight. Says students will try to disprove this on the shoulder pull exercise machine, setting it to higher than their own weight, only to find themselves lifting their entire body up as opposed to pulling the weight down. We got a nice quote here. Everyone should at least one 
Wait. Everyone should get at least one good look at the eyes of a man who finds himself rising toward what he wants to pull down to himself. Line, the guru's name is Lyle. All right. Yeah, that's all I have for that. That's a weird little... I like weird characters like that in real life that just hang around. I don't know any of them that their profession is to lick sweaty teens, but... Yeah, I mean, definitely weird. I, I, the way that they introduced him as Lyle at the end of that whole passage, like Lyle would probably be the last name you expect. Yeah, well, especially they're picturing him, and he seems like a, a, a bit of a hirsute, dusky man. And then, to, like, Lyle is not something I would ever, ever picture for a man like that. But yeah, and I think it, later in the book, it kind of gets clear that like. A lot of the people who work at ETA are like these really weird characters that in one way or another fall into James and Condenza's scope. And he's just like, okay, you're in the building now. But, uh, you know, Lyle does have a role later on. And like he does some of like the real hard hitting philosophical stuff, like with students, you know, having dilemmas. They, they do go to Lyle. And maybe it would seem maybe the whole licking sweat thing is sort of a device to you know kind of ta- almost like make you not real realize that like it could come off as preachy but the fact that it's just so weird that these teens are like kind of cool with it because they get the advice that they need <laughs> and it's not like a sexual thing it's like right. it's, it's sort of a distraction from that like yeah. no, actual no, deep stuff no such thing as a free lunch you know sometimes they're trying to sell <laughs> you something sometimes they just want to take your sweat you know however it works out yeah. um so after that section, we have yours truly, which we went over yours truly and C, who we will clearly see again, and poor Tony. Uh, November 3rd, you're of the dependent undergarment. Oren gives Hal a call. Uh, they do a little bit of the thing that we've seen with Hal and Oren when they discuss that they seem to be having entirely different conversations. Mario is, I mean, uh, Oren is discussing one thing entirely, and Hal is not even engaging with that. Oren accuses Hal of masturbating because he always takes forever to get to the phone and is out of breath when he gets there. Hal estimates 60% of everything he's said to Oren over the phone has been a lie, which he enjoys for some reason. Uh, Hal discusses masturbating in the SATs. Oren discusses his own masturbation habits and watching a guy smash his face on the pavement near his house. Weirdly enough, I have stories about both of those topics. Weird masturbation with older relatives and a guy smashing his face on the pavement. Before I get into that weird topic, do you have anything in particular about this little section? Nothing so much in particular, except that for the fact that, like, the whole family seems to have this very weird... I mean, maybe that's kind of, like, the interesting thing about the family, and that each character is very different, but they all, like, none of them really relate to each other. They all have this weird way of, like, having like telling their own story, different stories. Like, I mean, cause Mario too. And then like there is later in the book, there's like a whole family dinner and it's just like every, like they all think it's normal, even though to anybody else, it's, it's so weird. It's like, you kind of, once you're no longer, a, when you're a kid, you might have like parallel play where it's like two ki- or kids having a cut, like they're talking, but they're not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. They're like, it, it, one's it, like, I went to the park today. And the other one's like, I saw My belly button is orange and like, <laughs> yeah, no, nah, it's, it's almost like they're, they're calling each other up to have conversations with themselves 
it almost seems. Yes. Like, maybe that's where they feel comfortable. Uh, yeah, I just remember weird, like, I remember I first, I first learned about masturbating when I was way too young to do it from, like, an older cousin. And I remember he actually, like, really sold it, like, you know, oh, wait till you get there, it's the fucking best, which... He was right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say he was wrong, but still, kind of weird in retrospect. Yeah, it was weird for me too. How I started. It was at like a summer camp where like everybody else was doing it, and I just like I didn't even know what they were talking about. And they're like encouraging me, being like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Like here, here's a magazine. Oh, here's a condom. Oh like God. go for it. Let it go. Go to the bathroom. Like let let us know how it goes." Wow. Everything short of me coming out and everybody cheering for me. It was like just so weird. And then, of course, after that, I and that was like when I was I was not young. I was like 13 or 14 and then uh-huh. got hooked on that for ever, basically. <laughs> Oof, God. Yeah. The, the terrible some, some addictions are just you just live with, you know, mm-hmm. I don't I don't see myself hopping off that horse anytime soon. <laughs> me, too. I've, I've tried and. Only hopped long enough to run alongside the horse and hop right back on. <laughs> but the focus was, it's not like you could just forget the horse. You're stuck with the horse one way or another. It's a matter is if you're on or if you're just watching, wishing you could be on. God. Exactly. Um, I actually have a fun story about a guy smashing his face on the pavement that I'll share with you and the listeners. I Please was, uh, do. I was working at a pizza place. This was like two years ago this was before i just started doing office work uh a man had collapsed in the street after picking up food at a place and thought he had a heart attack or something his nose was all bloody we rolled him over he starts coming to we're talking to him a police officer comes up but spoiler for the end he was a diabetic he hadn't taken his insulin he's fine but he's coming to and we're asking him questions like sir you're okay you passed out uh do you know where you are? And he said uh, the name of the town. I'm like, oh, I'm in Oakland. Like, do you know what day it is? He goes, Sat- Sunday, Sunday. Say, do you know who the president is? And he closed his eyes and he looked around and then he just blinked and he goes, oh, that fucking asshole. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I feel <laughs> that warmed my heart. Like he was in a special place for a few seconds there. And I, I felt bad we had to take him back to make sure he was <laughs> It's like pulling someone out of a dream where they have all the food in the world and a hot babe, and then they're just uh, just before they get to have sex and or eat. For me, I more often have the dream with the, the giant buffet, and I never get to. I'm just about to eat the food, and then I wake up. That kind I, of disappointment. I never. Well, this goes back to the masturbation talk. I never had uh, food dreams, but I have never. I have. I am a dream sex virgin. I keep getting, like, just every time I'm about to get it, the dream ends, and I wake up. And It's I'm, a thing. Yeah. It is a thing. I think it's like your brain, your brain knows that, like, the simulation will fail once, <laughs> once you start to actually do it. So, like, I've, I've come close and failed in so many ways. A lot of times we're, like, naked in the room, and then they're like, oh, I need to just go get something. And then next thing I'm like like on some journey and I'm like, wait, where did they go? Your brain knows that if you actually don't have this sensation that you're going to like, it's a pinch me moment of like, it's a fake. So I think your dreams just find a way to work around that somehow. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're in the matrix. Maybe if, if you make it, if you actually consummate in that dream, this, this whole thing comes down like a house of cards. It's the only thing. 
I did have one thing once where I was about to like about to have sex with a girl in the dream, and then then I woke up. And I was like, no, 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 I need to get back into that dream. I'm still in a mental state where I think I can fall back asleep and maybe re-enter. And I re-enter and she's pregnant. Oh my God, you missed the only fun part of the dream. I know. You came back for the responsibility. (laughs) Oh my God, that is so fucking funny. That's great. Um, Okay, moving ahead. Brief discussion. We, we see the Ennett House Drug and Alcohol Recovery House. They mentioned that that is a redundancy. For I, I believe the first time, I'm th- I think this is going to be big as we go here. Uh, fun line here. For those who don't know people in AA, they go by, you know, Bill W., the founder. I would be Jesse D. You would be Ben T. They have that as their own an- anonymity. Fun little quote here about the founder of Ennett House. In his new humility, so valued AA's tradition of anonymity that he refused even to use his first name and was known in Boston AA circles simply as the guy who didn't even use his first name. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Um, He required new recruits to literally eat small rocks to demonstrate how dedicated they were to sobriety, to public health, and stop. That's a very funny line. I I like that a lot. That's a good one. I mean, I think the fact that they talk about, like, oh, you might think that, like, eating the brick, like, is crazy, but, like, when you're addicted, what they're asking, the other things that seem completely ridiculous Mm -hmm. that they're asking you to do, like, are worse. Exactly. Like, oh, you won't, you know, you won't eat a rock, but you will, like, shoot something up your arm to make you feel good. Like, this one is way less harmful to you than that. Which, no, I, well, I think they were saying not that as much as I think they were saying the process of recovery may as well have been eating a brick to show your dedication, uh, like okay, that you were okay. going to have to like awkwardly hug all these people that you don't know and don't like and mm-hmm. things like that. Okay, I get you. I get you there. Um, we get a weird little sketch here that I really like. Uh, this is written... In the form, this one actually I, I like because uh, I kind of like the format for the first time because this is where I first saw him doing very much like the Bram Stoker thing of like, oh, I'm going to tell this, uh, like the original Dracula is written in a series of journals and letters, and that's how the story is told. This little segment is told via a claims adjustment form, which is pretty neat. It's a bricklayer comes into the hospital with a cracked skull and 0.3 blood alcohol content. He is a bricklayer. He had excess brooks on the roof after a job, so he tied a pulley to the ground, loaded 900 kilograms of rocks into a barrel at the top, and when he untied it at the ground floor, the barrel dropped on him, cracked his skull, and yanked him up to the roof, jamming his hand in the pulley. This would go back to what Lyle said about uh, yeah, being pulled up to what he thought he would pull down. When the barrel hits the floor, its bottom drops out, losing all its weight, meaning now the bricklayer is coming down, the barrel is going up, to put his actual quote here, devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 30 kilograms. I refer you again to my weight of 75 kilograms. As you could imagine, still holding the rope, I began a rather rapid descent from the pulley down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and laceration of my legs and lower body. 
And the section then cuts off mid-sentence as he is describing how. And of course, once I'm down there and the barrel was up, the barrel comes down and lands on me again. That's a pretty great little sketch there. That would be that would be something I wouldn't mind seeing on film. I I, I was thinking that that like when you're talking about like the sketch, infinite chest sketch. I mean that one it would definitely require some technical ability, but like yeah, it's like slapstick basically. So it would be it would work great. Um, God, I actually, I have another, a lot of personal stories about this one. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was working with my stepdad. We were building, we were building an auto garage. He was a contractor. We were building the second floor and outside there were a bunch of Polish guys who were doing the masonry work. So they have like a big scaffold up against this two floor building. They're doing the stonework. Um, they didn't speak any English. They were very rude to us. One day we're up there, we hear screaming. What happened was it had rained the night before. The scaffolding was a little weird. They took a bucket lid and put it under the legs of one of the scaffolds, and it went through. So pretty much they went suddenly, like, leaning very hard against this. All these guys fell off, and very sad, very badly injured, but the comedy of it being uh, they spoke perfect English once they really, really needed to. I probably shouldn't have told that. That just sounds way sadder than I recalled, but. <laughs> Sorry if the audio changes a bit. I'm just uh, making sure that my uh, my phone doesn't die, but okay. Oh, okay. You can still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you fine. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, that that is a, a pretty crazy story, though. <laughs> Sorry. All right, uh, we get here, we, we get to read an essay that Hal wrote comparing Hawaii Five-0 with Hill Street Blues. Um, you know what, let me, I, I've just been reading these and summarizing and then asking what you think. Do you, you want to take the lead on this? What, what, what did you get out of this little chunk here of Hawaii Five-0 and Hill Street Blues used to argue classical versus postmodernism? It was hard for me, like, I, I didn't even understand exactly what like what point he was trying to make at first, mm. but I'm also not like really a film reviewer. Okay. Um. So. But but I sort of I mean, I, I got what it, the point he was trying to make, even though he didn't get a good grade. Even though it sounded like he he probably deserved a better grade than Ogilvy gave him on this. Oh yeah, he definitely got deep on this. I mean, the overall he's trying to make is. Uh... The main character, Steve McGarrett from Hawaii Five-0, is a classical hero. Captain Frank from Hill Street Booze is a postmodern hero. And what divides them up there is the classical hero, we get to see, like, we get to see him being the hero. He's not tied down with real-world things that would happen in that job. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He doesn't have any bureaucratic red tape. We just get to see him get the bad guy, and we get the pleasure of seeing that. Exactly. It's very, like, cut and dry no distractions, like one case per week, like here's the situation, like it's all, all the focus is on you, like just go solve the problem. Exactly. There's not like, there, there's not a lot of like classical hero archetypes where like the hero has to go deal with his mother who's giving him shit about his brother for a while. It's like, no, we're here to see him be the hero. And, you know, pure and good, no inner conflict whatsoever. Whereas Captain Frank, we see he's commanding a precinct and the character's in it. 
It's less about his, you know, glory. It's more how he deals with distractions everywhere, dealing with all the characters, delegations, egos to massage, fighting corruption. Uh, a, a good line that Hal has here that is, uh, again, starting with the Hill Street Blues guy. Frank Farillo retains his sanity, composure, and superior grooming in the face of a barrage of distracting, unheroic demands that would have left Chief Steve McGarrett slumped, unkempt, and chewing his knuckle in administrative confusion. Yeah, I like that. I, I prefer the the reality look at that there. I've never I've never liked the unflawed hero. Right. I mean, I think it's more realistic. And he kind of commented on how like once it took this turn to being more realistic, like it it resonated with people and it never it never turned back. And I kind of liked how he said like the logical progression is the next thing is that the hero is just like catatonic and just gets dragged from <laughs> you know from one location to another right what happens after this which is funny i do kind of wonder how this is going to go because you see this even with uh the main example that comes to mind i think of is like superheroes just because there's such a, a narrow thing in our history and how they just started out with you know flash gordon and superman like they they do the right thing but, like, the huge explosion we've seen where, like, superheroes have been for adults and young adults and not just children has been, like, these movies where they're constantly, like, grappling with their own moral compass and is this, like, they're getting philosophical about it. Like, you can't imagine classic Superman running in there and just ignoring everything and destroying shit just to get the job done, you know? Very true. And I mean, when you have like multiple heroes, like the Avengers or whatever, it gets even more like there's just like so much of this like interpersonal drama that has nothing to do with the actual like heroics. Exactly. The, the Avengers is a workplace drama. It's <laughs> a lot of dear God, just just doing comedy and seeing how people's egos get out of control. Can you imagine those people with and their egos with? literal superpowers it would be a, a nightmare we, we'd all die very quickly yeah it's a it's a nightmare already and none of us are all that powerful to begin with thank, thank god we all hate ourselves in one way or another um okay we get to helen steeply's only published article about this is another good little sketch i do like this chunk that we got assigned this week uh they talk about a woman who got an artificial heart however that artificial heart is not the one we think of that like you know dark lord dick cheney has pumping forever it is kept externally in an ever-present purse which she carries uh her life goes amazingly well after she her her artificial heart until she is confronted by a transvestite purse snatcher a a great line as the woman's literal heart is stolen and she confusingly cries that woman stole my heart. A nearby police officer whimsically comments, happens all the time. Um, <laughs> God, that's it. Ugh. They're making me like this fucking book, Ben. That is yes, not, I knew I'd like That's not the title of this goddamn podcast. I don't want to like this thing. Uh, she runs four blocks before her body gives out with the artificial heart, and the heart itself is found bashed with a rock by the snatcher a few blocks away. Again, more than any movie, I would like to see just like just brief vignettes of Infinite Jest. Don't don't waste with the story. Just just show me the good stuff. This would be one of the good ones, yeah. Yeah. Um 
Oh, God. Okay. If you want to get into this, the, our, our segment ends with a, a brief sojourn about the brief period of time where video telephones came into fashion, which surely that's an absurd futurist unreality and not the thing you and I are doing immediately at this moment right now. By oh, of course not. Yeah. What, what ridiculous assumptions you made. Yeah. Um, oh. And it is kind of funny, especially now with the whole pandemic and everything where people are like, oh, shoot, I need to do be on like video calls all the time. Like now they have all the different backgrounds you can add. And and even with the masks, there's like I remember uh, there was like some person, like a professional who ended up giving an entire like lecture where their, there was their head was like made to look like a potato uh-huh. and they probably their kids are messing with it or something but it is i mean there is a certain truth to uh the fact that like yeah a lot of times i prefer to have a phone call with someone because i want to be doing something else while i'm talking to them in a video call like yeah you have to actually look like you're paying attention right exactly you can't be you know picking your nose or scratching your ass or or obviously not paying attention. That's what they get at is that in this period of video uh, telephones that people end up, you know, excited for it like they are with anything else. But then they realize as a society that we're really uncomfortable giving not only having to give undivided attention, but seeing people aren't paying attention to us. This leads to things spiraling out where, you know. Uh, p- people first want like, oh, well, let me get a composite photo of myself so I'm always paying attention. Actually, I don't look that attractive there. Let me get the best angles composited from that and then I can look like my best self. Actually, why am I just doing that over the telephone when I could wear this mask all the time out in the real world and be more attractive? And then apparently we as a whole society just realize this is kind of dumb. Let's stop this. Yeah, and let's just go back to the regular phones, which is... Like I have had, you know, now that I'm trying to date, it's like there have been times when I like we say, oh, should we zoom? And we end up doing a phone call instead. And it's like, oh, it's cool. Like, oh, we're going so old school with the phone call. Oh, it's kind of like cute and romantic now. It's like we don't need all this technology. So, I mean, I think one of the things that they say about infinite just in terms of, you know, what makes it like, you know, it was written in 1996 and I'm sure a lot of the writing of it was even earlier before, you know, you could have seen a lot of this coming. So yes, he was wrong on certain things like usage of cartridges, mm-hmm. um, which definitely feels very dated, but yeah. never, you know, just predicting idea. how the whole capitalist, you know, mm-hmm. opportunistic thing would go once they try to do video phones. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it is like, not that far off. Oh, yeah, no. And, and I do like that he he does hit in there that this whole thing is like a machine that's really like people are throwing stuff out there to the consumers. But the fact that they hit this dead end where everyone was just done with it. So, like, everybody's making out great until suddenly, like, oh, no, the market disappeared. And if you didn't get out too early, early enough, well, fuck you. You're stuck. You lost your shirt. <laughs> kind of like Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, that's actually... That, that's actually really cool what you were talking about, that you were doing the dating over uh, Zoom. I'm I'm lucky that I got tied down a few months before all this happened, but that actually does sound good with a telephone call, because it's almost like, I don't know, I feel dating in general, people are like too, like they don't want to show their cards. Whereas, it's true. Whereas over a, a telephone call with no video, 
you can just like react and absorb and not worry about how you're being seen or are you giving too much away and that's have you been doing like a lot of uh that kind of like digital dating right now with because i know again you're in new york where like it's been extremely hard in this old coronavirus thing yeah well i actually just started because i was actually dating someone for a few months actually like our first date was like right when the lockdown hit oh. um so like we were together until maybe like two weeks ago so i'm really like I'm entering into this now being like, so what have you all been doing for the past few months for the quarantine? So it's uh, coming in with a pair of fresh eyes and no idea what to do. Um, God. But I did have like my first date in the city, but it was like, yeah, it was kind of just awkward. And everyone's wearing a mask and you're like trying to find a place where you can go where no one else is. And mm-hmm. on a sunny day, you can't really get that. Yeah. God. But I think part of what I realized with the pet, with the girlfriend, why it took two months to realize we weren't compatible was like, you know, seeing each other in person and having lots of sex and everything and had, you know, basically not having to deal with the reality of what's going on in the world, at least while we were together was Mm -hmm. very nice. But then like, it was the phone calls when I kind of like realized I'm like, Oh my God, like we actually don't really have anything to talk about. Oh yeah. No, it's weird because we're all like, I I think we're going to look back on this as like a scary summer break. Like we're all, we're all diverting to being children again. And just because, you know, not a lot of responsibility. I mean, even if you are working, you're, you're essentially at home in your own playpen the entire time. And then to actually relate to each other as adults, like, eh, this part, not so much. I don't, I don't care for this part here, but yeah, and I was already living at home with my parents because I had moved away from the city a couple months earlier before all of this hit just mm-hmm. to try to save some money for a master's. So like the fact that like in a way I kind of benefit that the stigma kind of changed. No one cares anymore that I live at home with my parents, you know, where before that would like would have been a big, a big issue. You're, you're a catch right now. You moved out of ground goddamn zero. You're You're safe out there. Where, it, it, you know, not surrounded uh, threats of contamination at all times, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was actually really lucky. We moved to, uh, I originally lived in South Philly, which, you know, it's it's populated. But we moved to a much more bare type of ta- uh, chunk of the city. And we're much, we're in a much better position where just like you can actually get away from people. And there's trees and fields and shit. And, you know. Wait, so are you in New York? No, no, no. I'm in Philadelphia still. Oh, okay, cool. But I'm in a different, like, I'm trying to, yeah, I don't know New York enough to really have the equivalent, but it's like, it's that, it's that part of the city where you're basically in the burbs, but you're still in the city. You're still in the yeah. city. Okay. Yeah. That's like where I am too. Exactly. So to get out of like the equivalent, I, I don't know where we're before, we're in a much better place. Uh, me and her moved in together literally like March 13th when everything was shutting down. And thankfully, it's it's worked out because it would have been particularly goddamn bad if it didn't work out. And, you know, the world is dying outside. I would have been moving back with my mom, too. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben, I think uh, I think we're done here. This is a good one. All right. Yeah, this this was a lot of fun. Yeah, we I, we had the added benefit of this being a particularly good chunk. There, uh, you know, for something I'm trying to criticize and lambast to the people of the world, there are I would say I liked more of these sections than I didn't like. 
and we got your unique perspective having listened to it. I know, fuck, I already forget the pronunciation. Marath? Marath? Marat. 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 It's going to stick. I can feel it. It's clinging in there. But yeah, this is a good one. And you, what was your overall feeling of the book after all? Like, do you think it lived up to the hype or didn't? I know you said it was not I'm I'm trying to talk for you. You talk. My bad. Well, so like when I finished, I was I was I was getting really into it, especially towards the end. I really feel like it was like accelerating interest towards by the end. I was like making any excuse I could to listen to it. And then the end I found, like I sort of in the past, the last like hundred pages, I was like, wait, this isn't doing what I like, what it's supposed to do. Things are not concluding. Um, And I was very frustrated. Like I felt like I just got cheated. But then like, you know, of course I read things afterwards and, you know, they say like part of the whole point is he's trying to throw the idea on its head, like that something, something can um, break all the rules of entertainment and still be entertaining. Like, even though it's really like almost intentionally frustrating Mm -hmm. for a lot of it, um, it it finds other ways to compel you, Um, which maybe, you know, well, I I know originally you were saying like, you did not feel compelled, but now I don't know. I feel like this is the moment where like uh, Squidward tries the the Krabby Patty and it's like, (laughs) you like Krabby Patties, don't you Squidward? The the one other thing I would say is like that I found kind of interesting, just like reading about it. You know, he was a mathematician, Mm -hmm. um, David Foster Wallace, and he said he kind of tried to use this like uh, base. I can't think of the word right now, like one of those like recursive mathematical things like the triangles where the different triangles fit inside the triangle. Something like uh, uh, it's something. It begins with the letter T, but it's ugh. Driving me crazy, I can't think of it. But anyway, like that he basically like designed the book like that. Like every story, there's like three different people and they are inside another triangle of a larger story. So I feel like as crazy as it sounds, I'm like, damn, I feel like I need need to listen to it again to like see if I can like actually pick up on that. Oh, here it is. It's called a Sierpinski gasket. That's the triangle infinitely subdivided into smaller triangles. That's that's the one. So I'm sure I'll find some super fan out there that made a graph of how that works. And I can dive into that at some other point. (laughs) Right. And I haven't really given or dived too much into the analysis. I right now I would not rate it as one of my favorite books, but it might be one of those ones that just like sticks with me for a longer time. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people say um, because it, because it isn't like angels and demons for whatever. When I read that book, mm. like even it's very formulaic, but the formula works or right. here it's not formulaic at all. So like right now it's like, I still don't even know what to make of a lot of it, but maybe like in five or 10 years, like those, you know, I'll be like, Oh, all down Dan Brown books are the same, but this one, you know, and especially knowing you're not going to get enough, you know, he's he's gone and this is the only book he wrote. Right. So it's like, you know, there's only one book that's basically like this. So. Right. So you get this. It's worth I think it's worth everyone should try reading it, even if you don't like it, because it at least gets you thinking about things differently. But that doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy it. Okay, that is a perfect tagline. I would like that to be on all future pressings of this book, because I think you summed it up 
very, very well. Ben, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, if you want to remind us again what we should look at and where we can find you, uh, social media, all that, please. Okay, uh, sure. Well, uh, I go, my stage name is my real name, Ben Pernick. So it's Ben Pernick on Instagram, Facebook, and except for Twitter where I'm Benjamin Pernick because some asshole stole Ben Pernick. Oh, fuck original Ben Pernick. I think there's some musician in Florida who has the same name. Damn, I'm, but uh, I'm, I'm always competing with him. But, and you can find my album, Bad Juju, J-E-W-J-E-W, on Spotify and all major platforms. Awesome. All right, Ben, thank you very much for joining us here in the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. I'm going to stop recording, but we can talk for a few more seconds. Goodbye.